Morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Can you hear me? Awesome. I'm a little sick, so I can't hear out of my left ear for some reason, so I can't tell the volume that I'm talking. So if ever I like talk too quietly, just like let me know. Um, so, uh, friends, my name is Rich. I'm the pastor of the Inclusive Collective. It's uh, a campus ministry that is uh, tied pretty intimately to Urban Village and supported by so many of you. And uh, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of folks who are here who are also part of the Inclusive Collective and vice versa. And so uh, it's good to be with y'all. I pastor that uh, community, but I also go to church here. I'm often out of town because I'm preaching at other places, uh, but it feels really good to preach here and to be amongst uh, people, my people, uh, and to be home. So uh, I'm grateful to be here this morning. After the service, there will be an inclusive collective event. Some of you may know a lot about who we are and already support us. Others of you uh, may have never heard of us until this morning, until Olivia spoke, um, which she did a beautiful job. Amen? Amen. And so uh, if you want to learn more, right after this service, there will be some food and stuff out in the lobby area. And so you can come and uh, join us, and we'll tell you a little bit more about who we are and uh, find some ways uh, to connect with you. So I hope you all stay. It won't be super long, but I hope you all stay um, for that after this service. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the people gathered here. Thank you for Olivia's testimony, for words from Scripture for um, announcements about things going on in our community, about invitation, about justice. God, and thank you um, for these moments. And in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, be aligned with you, be aligned with who you are and who you are calling us to be. And God, when they're not, remind us that you are a God who always welcomes us back to your way. Amen. Amen. It was love at first time. But online, not everyone is I heard of it. Okay, this one, and there's one similar feedback's gone on MTV. In fact, this show has been going on for a lot of seasons. Uh, this, the ninth season just premiered a few weeks ago. And the premise of the show is that they take people who are in love with people they've met online and are dating, sometimes even for several years, without ever meeting in person. And the people who uh, are on the show eventually, understandably, become frustrated because they keep trying to meet the people they're dating, and the people keep finding reasons to not meet them. So maybe it's an unexpected doctor's visit, an emergency hospital visit, a death in a family, a sudden trip for work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things always happen that keep them from meeting. And so the creators of the show, they get these people on there and go and they try to find out if the people they are, their guests are dating are really who they say they are. Or, and often they discover that their guest in a really terrible way, have been tricked, have been duped. Again, sometimes for years by the people they thought they were dating. So the online partner is usually a real person, but they just present themselves as someone they're not. So maybe they use a fake picture. Maybe they use a picture from 35 years ago. 
Maybe they lie about their profession or where they live or their marital status. There are so many other things. And so the creators of the show use background checks and investigation, investigation tools, etc., to find out if the people they're dating are really who they say they are. And now, obviously, this can be really traumatic for people on the show, right? Think about it. You're dating someone for so many years. It could be the person that you're in love with, the person you want to marry, the person you've been pouring your life into and talking to for a long time, and then you discover that these people are fake. The people have been duped, they've been lied to, they've been what we call catfished. And catfishing does not just exist in the dating world, right? It exists in other places too. There's an insidious form of catfishing that in fact happens in churches, Churches tell people one thing, but then it turns out to be a lie. One of the most common examples is churches that say, we're welcoming to everybody. We're inclusive to all people. And they want people to come in their doors. They are welcoming through the doors, but once you get in the doors, the welcome always has a hard stop. So come and do these things, but oh, you can't lead the small group. Oh, you can't be involved in the children's ministry. Oh, you can't sing in the worship band. In our community, we have a lot of people who have been victims of this type of church catfishing. People who told they were welcome, even though they're LGBTQ. Come in. You're included here. Only to find out later that that was a total lie. And this catfishing is often done in the name of evangelism. It's done in the name of making the community look a little bit more welcoming than it actually is, so people will come in and be part of the church. And this sort of lie is often excused because of evangelism. Kevin Garcia is a queer Christian in Atlanta and a seminarian, and I want us to listen to their story of um, what they call theological catfishing that happened to them in a church in Atlanta just a few years ago.
Oh, he's really funny. <laughs> so this video is a part of, um, he does a lot of different videos. I encourage you to look him up on YouTube. But this particular one is also a part of a larger um, collection of stories that comes from the organization Church Clarity, uh, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. But Kevin's story, uh, even though he tells it with some levity there and with some lightness that can, you can tell that he's worked through it a lot and has been involved in other circles that are affirming, even though he tells it with some humor, it's one that is packed full of hurt and betrayal and trauma. Because this church in Atlanta catfished him. He calls it theological catfishing. This church told Kevin directly and clearly that they would find no barrier but then the church constructed, or maybe the barriers existed the whole time. They were just trying to hide them. And Kevin's story is reflective of a large trend in the church. It's not just this one-off story that happened to one person, but it happens all the time of people being lied to in order to get people in the pews, all in the form of evangelism. So churches cover up who they really are in order to be more appealing and a little bit shinier and a little bit more welcoming to people, supposedly. And this isn't unique to queer folks either, right? Churches tell women, oh, you can come in. You can be fully a part of this community. You can lead. But then women find really, really low stained glass ceilings. Or to people of color to say, hey, come, and this is a fully diverse community, only to find that the church operates in mostly white, dominant culture ways, and it's all covered up with the thin veneer of a racial reconciliation talk. Churches tell people, oh, your questions and doubts, they're so welcome. And then quickly you're labeled a heretic. Or we care about justice, but you're talking about politics a little too much around here. It's theological catfishing, and supposedly the ends justify the means, because if more people come, then it was worth telling whatever lie that we had to tell. So to name the resource uh, Church Clarity, uh, it's one of the re- theological catfishing is one of the reasons why this new uh, online resource has been created. Has anyone heard of Church Clarity? Great, a lot of hands I see. It's a great website. You can go to it, and their tagline is this, Clarity is Reasonable. And so what happens is you go to the website, and they have a system for scoring and keeping track and reporting on the ways that churches are inclusive. And so they report on the ways that churches are inclusive of LGBTQ folks, of women in leadership, and they're also working on how to do anti-racism work as well. It's a great tool to use if you have folks looking for inclusive churches and you want to find out where they really stand uh, on a variety of topics. So we're in the series this month, right, called Beyond Invitation, and we spent the month talking about evangelism. And it's this E-word that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, really don't like. We have a little bit of an allergy to it. I see some smiling faces and some heads nodding. Uh, because it's been used in so many terrible ways. So a lot of us don't like it, uh, and evangelism is a core practice of faith that we are called to. And so we're trying and attempting as best we can to uh, reclaim it from its long history of shame and violence and so many bad practices. Because at this church, we we, we do believe in critiquing, that criticism is not bad that we can totally lament the ways that the church has done bad, bait-and-switch, catfishing, violent ways of evangelism, but we don't simply stop at the critique. We also imagine new ways of doing faithful evangelism. And one of the reasons why is because many of us are products of evangelism, right? At some point, 
someone shared their faith with us, whether in word or deed, and perhaps if you're here this morning, that sharing made a profound difference in your life. I know it has mine. Michael Dash, seventh grade, shared his faith with me, and my faith is the most, is the biggest part of my life now. And so if, if, share, if faith sharing has made a difference in our lives, maybe one of the things that we need to think about is how we can do it in ways that have integrity to who we are and who we believe God is. And so this whole month has been unpacking evangelism and finding faithful ways to practice it. And I believe that one of the ways that we can reclaim evangelism and imagine it for today is to do something simple. One of the core pieces of this practice, if we're going to be faithful about it, is to simply do this, to tell the truth. To practice clarity to not catfish. In evangelism, it's important to know and to, to talk about who we are, whose we are, and what we can and can't promise. We want to strive to not be this bait and switch kind of church that catfishes people and then promises things that we can never live up to. Now, we may not be tempted to catfish around LGBTQ inclusion because when we say that, we really do mean it. But it's worth asking as we sort of think about our own life as a church, what are ways that we are tempted to present an overly polished model of church to other people? Do we claim to get justice and inclusion right all the time? No. Well, we may not. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amen. That's good. Raising up young activists over here. That's awesome. <laughs> um, do, we <laughs> do we always live out our anti-racism values perfectly? Again, we don't. Do we tell folks they will instantly find community with little effort? The truth is it may take some time and a lot of effort on their part. So we may not be able to promise the world or make all these grand promises or to promise a shiny, perfect, nearly perfect church to people. But we can promise a community of people who are messed up and messy and imperfect, but we're trying to follow Jesus with all we've got, the best that we know how, failing and getting back up again and trying again. Let's be clear about that. Yes. yes. I love the talk back this morning. So in our text today from Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and John practicing clarity about what they can and can't offer. The book of Acts, you may know, is the fifth book of what we call the New Testament, and it tells the story, the launch of the early church. So right after Jesus has resurrected and ascended, it tells the, the beginnings, the genesis of Christian communities of faith. So Peter and John, these are two men who had been Jesus' closest followers, closest friends, disciples. They had walked with him when he was on earth. And so um, these folks are headed to the temple to pray around 3 p.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as they arrive, they find a disabled man. And just quickly to name, and we'll talk about some disability um, interpretation of the text in a minute, but sometimes when we, we read versions of Scripture that use antiquated language, and one of them, just to name the word crippled in the passage, and so we use the word um, disabled because it's what disabled people would like us to use. So we use language appropriate to the communities. So they arrive, and they find a disabled man asking for money at the beautiful gate outside the temple. And this man is asking for money, and his friends bring him there every day because he isn't able to get work, and he needs money to survive. And so his friends bring him there every day at what is essentially like rush hour at the temple. 
And so the disabled man asked Peter and John for money when they passed by. And instead of tossing some money at the, the man's way, they look him straight in the eyes. They look him straight in the eyes. Instead of averting their attention or pretending to be on their phones, they look him in the eyes. It may be something that didn't happen often to that man, right? Because there's something about looking another human being in the eye that is humanizing, that is connecting, that makes you feel a little bit more close with them. And so they look him in the eye, and Peter says to the man, Look, I don't have any silver, and I don't have any gold, but I'll give you something else. In the name of Jesus... Get up and walk. And so Peter grabs the man's hand, he reaches down and helps him up, and now the man can walk. But he doesn't just walk around sort of calmly. No, the man gets up and starts leaping around, praising God, worshiping in the temple, going into a place he wasn't allowed to go before. The text in, in several versions uses the word jumping or leaping to describe what the man does next. And so folks in the temple, they start recognizing him, right? They're like, hey, aren't you the guy who's been sitting here for years right outside the temple gates, and now you're in the temple jumping around and leaping and praising God, and the folks start to be amazed. So let's unpack the story a little bit. Disability theologians have many important things to teach us about interpreting texts like this, healing texts from the Bible. Hats up to Zoe, who I talked with earlier this week, um, who does a lot of disability theology work, and we sort of unpack this passage together. So texts like this have often been used in some really problematic ways, right? To nurture pity towards people who are disabled. And these healing narratives have also been used to try and prove that the only way, only faithful way for people who are disabled to move forward is through full bodily healing. But many disabled folks do not want healing. They view disability as a central part of their identity. And honestly, y'all, this was a new concept for me until a few years ago. I figured that all disabled people wanted full bodily healing until I learned and started reading and, and having relationships with people who are disabled. And so that may be a new thought for some of you today, which is fine. We're all learning, right? And so one of the examples I think that may be helpful is this. Some folks think that all queer folks, if possible, would want to be straight. Well, I love all of you beautiful straight people. <laughs> But let me tell you, I tried that, and it, it don't work. <laughs> so, happy pride, friends. But this is a similar thing to disabled folks, right? Is that many people believe that being blind or deaf or using a wheelchair is such a core part of who they are and how they live in the world that bodily healing would be more of an assault on their personhood than a liberatory act. And so we know this passage can be used in some problematic ways, but one thing we need to always keep in mind when reading Scripture, not just this passage, but any passage, is context. Because we live in such a time that is, that is so divorced from the reality of how people in the first century lived. And so in this first century context, disability was seen, it, well, there wasn't sort of a medical model around it. Disability was seen as, the, as an effect of grave, grave sin. And thus, even more so than now, disability played a major role in keeping people ostracized from community, in keeping people unable to play a, a, a role, a social role, 
and in keeping people um, away and ostracized from any sort of economic life and work. The fact that this man is outside the temple at the temple gates show that he's not allowed inside the temple by the religious establishment. The fact that he has to beg for money every day shows that he is not allowed to participate in the economy. And so perhaps then the goal of this healing was not to erase the disability, but the goal was to erase exclusion and injustice. The best way to do that during this time was bodily healing because it was what would lead to full communal participation. So what's this passage mean for us? What's the deeper truth? What is the thing behind the thing? I want to highlight one particular part of the passage today, and that is the clarity of Peter and John in this moment. Peter and John did not catfish the man. They didn't promise him something that they would never be able to offer. They didn't promise him something that they could never fulfill. Instead, they're honest with him. The man asked for money, and Peter and John say, we don't have that. And they may really not have had it. We think often because of the way that Christians live in the U.S., and in this American context, that Christians all have money. But in this first century, early Christians were often marginal folks who were poor. So they may really not have had the money. But they are clear about what they do have. Jesus. And not some flimsy, sentimental Jesus, but a Jesus that is busy erasing lines of exclusion. A Jesus that is confronting the hypocrisy of a religious institution that will tell people that they are not welcome. A Jesus who enables the man to gain power and participate in the economic system and have agency. So Peter and John see this man. They really see him. And they're clear with him about the Jesus they follow, what that Jesus can promise and what that Jesus can't. And then the man becomes an evangelist himself. So he goes on to the temple and he's, he's leaping and jumping around, praising God, surely breaking proper temple decorum. And the people start taking a second look and rubbing their eyes and looking at him and saying, hey, isn't that that man that usually is at the gate and now he's in here jumping around and praising God? And so in the next part of chapter 3, Peter gives this spirited sermon unpacking the healing that just happened and talking about it and discussing what God can do through it. And it stirs up so much attention. And the book of Acts, in a lot of ways catapulted by this this sermon and this story and others, presents the story of the growth of the early church and how the early church multiplied in terms of people and power. And people did not start following Jesus because they were promised silver or gold, but for something much deeper. What is the something much deeper that we can actually promise? Ruby Sales as an elder of the civil rights movement. She was involved in it as a teenager, and she is still active in the fight for justice today. And this week, Krista Tippett of On Being, some of you may know the podcast, um, Krista Tippett released an interview with Ruby Sales, and Sales talks about an experience of that something much deeper. In Sales, earlier in the conversation, we won't listen to the whole thing, earlier in it, she discusses how as a teenager... She was so active in justice, and she began to question religion. And she became so suspect of it and skeptical of it that she sort of put it aside as she ramped up her involvement in the civil rights movement. But she came back to it later in life. But when she was skeptical of it, she basically began to think, as she uh, talks about in the interview, that proper social analysis and the right ideology 
would be what saves her and what saves her world. But then she became to realize that right thinking rarely, uh, right thinking alone rarely saves any of us from anything because it's not just about right thinking. And she, get, she came to discover something else, something deeper that she really needed. Let's listen to Ruby Sales. Where does it hurt? God had been with me even when I had not been with myself, developed an inner life that had to do with how I actually lived. To me, it sounds in a lot of ways like Ruby Sales experienced the kind of healing that Jesus can actually offer. So friends, my hope for us is that we will be bold in sharing our faith with others. And paying attention to how God is already at work in our world and in naming it and inviting people into our faith community because this is a fertile space to encounter Jesus. But I hope we will do it with clarity. I hope we will do it with the truth. And what is the truth? Well, the truth is that we believe in creating space for deep soul work. Experiences that stir us up, disrupt the status quo, and invite us to co-create God's beloved community. Experience that connect us with the God that Ruby Sales talks about. We believe that Jesus is inclusive and fully affirming of LGBTQ folks. In a time when some members of the queer community, like trans folks and queer people of color, are particularly under attack and ostracized, we want to especially name their sacred worth. We aren't perfectly inclusive, but we're trying. We believe community is vital and we are not meant to do life alone. We don't promise instant best friends or conflict-free community, but we promise a diverse and messy collection of folks who try to keep it real. We believe that Jesus is about justice and so we will work for equity and inclusion in all sorts of spaces and for all people. And this week I'm particularly mindful of how our government is actively choosing to keep immigrants and refugees, even children, in inhumane and unsanitary cages on our border and how threats of raids are instilling fear across our country and in our city. We don't do justice perfectly, but we try and try and try to make things look more like God's dream and less like our current reality. We believe that Jesus is calling us to anti-racist work, both internally in our church and externally in the world, in conversations around police brutality, reparations, and eradicating white supremacy. Our practices don't always align with our values, but we strive to get back up again and try and try and try with God's help. And we believe in Jesus, a revolutionary who speaks truth to power, who includes all people, who offers us grace upon grace upon grace. And we want people to experience a life-changing relationship with this Jesus who is bigger and better than the Jesus churches often peddle. We won't promise an easy life with Jesus, but we promise a life that is compelling and good and liberating and fun and abundant. We believe a lot of other things. And you may edit this list, you may add to this list, but whatever you add or edit, my hope for all of us is this, that we don't catfish, that we practice clarity, that we tell the truth about what Jesus can offer Because the truth about what Jesus can offer is a damn good one. Amen.